As we've been doing, I'm going to be reading to you from Revelation chapter 18 today. I'm going to read the entire chapter, and what I'd like you to do is just listen. If this is your first time with us, what we're doing is uh, listening to the book of Revelation as I read it, and then as we go back and, and, and explain what the different parts are, uh, then we'll look at the text, which is printed in your bulletin, and also maybe you have a Bible with you. So uh, you can do that. But now just uh, hear uh, God's word. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk of the wine of her passion, of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped up high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid others back. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup mixed. And she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I am, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come upon her in a single day, death and mourning and famine. She will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail with her when they see the smoke of her burning. And they will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold and silver and jewels and pearls and fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is the souls of humans. The fruit for which your soul longed for has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. 
and all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all those who trade on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and they wept and mourned, crying, Alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. For God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and with violence he threw it into the sea saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flutes and trumpeters will be heard in you no more, and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more, and the mill sound, the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more, and the light of the lamp will shine in you no more, and the, vo- the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more, for your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. In her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I don't know if you can hear it. I'm not sure I did uh, a very good job of it. But this is nothing less than a funeral dirge. If it was put to music, it would have had evoked... uh, Uh, the sound of sorrow and lament. And uh, depending on what culture you live in, those dirges would sound differently. So in our uh, culture, it would have had that kind of a morose and and deep sound of just grinding sadness and sorrow. And so what do you see here in the text? And why is John showing it to us? And who do we see Uh, at the end of the day. This book of Revelation, if you take it and you look at it clearly uh, in chronological order, uh, it becomes what I think is, I think it's impossible to understand chronologically. However, if you look at the book of Revelation as Jesus uh, keyed us in on early in the very first chapter, he gave us the interpretive guide for understanding Revelation, that these are symbols. There is no city, Babylon, that exists today. Now, that's not to say that in 500 years there may not be a Babylon, but there is no city, Babylon. What John would have been referring to is the city of Rome, and every city after it that looked like Rome not aesthetically, not by outward appearances, but just in how it operates. And if you think further, almost every city is this city. Throughout history, this is one of the geniuses, I think, of John's apocalypse, of John's way of writing symbolically, because these images are going to remain uh, pertinent, they are going to, to remain relevant 
Throughout history, it won't matter if we conquer other planets, if we fly to other places, if we, uh, it won't matter if the, if the world lasts another two million years, it just won't matter. These symbols and these sim- symbols are going to remain relevant forever. And the great harlot is that structure that has infected the world since Genesis chapter 3. It has shown up over and over and over in almost every culture, in every society, in manifold and different ways. It even exists here in our own country in the United States. This passion for luxury, for wealth, for power. And the thing that this harlot, this great prostitute rides on is the political system, the beast. And you say, well, which political system is it? All political systems. Rome, to be sure. In John's day, it would have meant Rome. In fact, Nero was called a beast. Now, by this time, Nero's long dead. But we know that Nero was a beast, and every emperor that followed him was bestial. And every world power that has existed eventually becomes bestial in its expression. It becomes power hungry. God forbid it should happen to our country, to the United States. In some areas we already are seeing the effects of it and maybe have seen it for a long time. But in other countries in the world you can see it very clearly. They are anti-God, anti-Christ. And so this harlot is riding on the beast. And over here is a second beast, the false prophet. And he is giving the world a cacophony of reasons through religion, through philosophy, through our own selfishness, through any number of means. This false prophet is constantly hammering away at our thinking, at our heart, telling us, you must be this, or you must have that, or you must live this way. Trying to make us uh, 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 look past the goodness that's in our lives, and always want more and more. The drive for consumerism and materialism. And the way the church has addressed this in the past has not been helpful. In the early church, they said, oh, okay, materialism's bad, consumerism is bad, sex is bad, lust is bad, all these things are bad, so we'll go hide out in a monastery. And if you read the stories and the history of these monasteries, they became hotbeds for what? Lust, sex, materialism, consumerism. You can't fight it that way. You can't just strip it all away and say, I'm going to live the simple life and I'm not going to have nice things and I'm just going to get rid of it. All that means is you really want them. You really want them. You want them more than the people that have them. Watch your heart. So what do we see? First of all, we see the fate of the harlot. Look at the, the, the very first verse and some of the verses that follow. A mighty angel says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, unclean bird, unclean, detestable beast, unclean. If you were reading it in Greek, you would understand that it is a song or a chant that is being chanted 
And so right away you know that it's not to be taken extremely literal. It is very figurative. And he says that in a single hour, that's repeated several times in the text, you probably heard it, in a single hour, this harlot is destroyed, she becomes desolate, she becomes uninhabitable. Now these cycles that we've been talking about that are repeating, these judgment cycles, this is one of them. This is a cycle of judgment and it is specific for Babylon, for this symbolic harlot who has allured human beings for centuries, still does it today. He, he knows, he knows the, the devil and there is a devil, there's a real devil, there are real demons, there are real spirits that are operating in this world. And then on top of that, we have our own heart, our own lust, our own desires for things. These are all working. And these cycle of judgments in Revelation are repeating and repeating, but they're also compressing and getting tighter to an f- ultimate end. Listen. The cycles repeat but are compressing. They're winding up like a spring to the final climax. Chronological and historical progression is occurring and it's going towards a definite end. So different interpreters of the book of Revelation say, you know, with the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet, we see the bowls being poured out. And so there is an intensification The thing is that humans, I mean, naturally we are self-absorbed. So we don't think that's going on and it's not happening until it happens in the United States. Right? Do you see how arrogant that is? If you lived in Aleppo, Syria, you would think it's already happening. Okay? If you lived in Darfur, you would have thought it was happening. Depends on where you live. But what John is saying is in this final cataclysm with these seven bowls that were poured out in these previous chapters, 15 and 16, a chronological end occurs. An ultimate cataclysmic worldwide end and final judgment. And that is in the future. That day is coming. And what I've told you and what I want to tell you again is you won't know it till it happens. In fact, if there is a 1946 after 1945, then you know it didn't happen. Do you all know what I'm talking about? World War, I, World War II ended in 1945. The world was at war. Japan, Europe, everybody's fighting. And people said this is the end of the world then. And it looked like it. But there was a 1946. So that wasn't the end of the world. And if you thought the end of the world came in 70 AD, like many preterists like to uh, uh, suggest, that that the end was 70 AD, that was the fall of Babylon. If you take that approach, then why was there year 71, 72, 73, and... 2018, 2019, and so on. Are you following me? When it does come, it's going to be global. You you know this by who he's talking about and who he's talking to. The symbols are global. 
And so these cycle of judgments. And so what we're seeing here is the final judgment. The bowls of wrath are being poured out. And several things are happening. That's why I say it's compressing. All the images are starting to be pushed into one another. And so these last few chapters can be somewhat confusing. I'm going to try to untangle it and and make some sense of it. And you either buy it or you don't buy it. It's, It's just up to you. But I think I'm going to give you a logical grid for which to read this and you can take it uh, for what it's worth. In chapter 15 and 16, you see the bowls of wrath. In chapter 17 and 18, we've seen the destruction of the harlot Babylon, which is riding on the back of this beast that came out of the sea. In chapter 19, which we'll look at next week, you're going to see the destruction of the beast and the false prophet, and you're going to see them cast into the lake of fire. And then you're going to see the dragon, Satan himself, cast into the lake of fire in chapter 20. And then you're going to see finally hell, death, and the grave cast into the lake of fire also at the end of chapter 20. And they all are referring to this same cataclysmic event. All these images, although they come, and then I saw... And then I saw, and then I saw. John is simply saying, I saw this vision next, and I saw this vision. Not that they happened chronologically. And if you are going to interpret chronologically, then you've got to go back to the very beginning. So, uh, verse 2, fallen is Babylon. Verse 21 through 24, look at it. A mighty angel takes a millstone, and he throws it into the sea. Now that's just, that's just imagery. He's not talking about Pacific, Atlantic, Indian Ocean, Caribbean. Let's hope it's not the Caribbean. Uh, where, where's he throwing this thing? Well, he's throwing it into the sea. The tohu v'bohu, the formless, the void, the symbol of Satan's power, where the beast came from, right? The beast came out of the sea. He throws the stone in there, And then he sings this song, Babylon will be thrown down and you will, listen, you will find her no more. Harpist, musician, craftsman, grinding mill, no more, no more, no more. He repeats it over and over. No more light from the lamp. No more voice of the bridegroom. No more voice of the bride. No more will your merchants and the great ones of the earth and they be deceived by sin. There's an end to it. An ultimate and complete end to Babylon. And John is wanting you to contrast this with what we're going to read next week, which is the bride coming down from New Jerusalem. You see, the harlot is the counterfeit. This is the message that the church preaches every single week. Come to Jesus. Come to the true bridegroom who will never deceive you. Give up your allegiance to the harlot, to the beast, to the false prophet. Give up, defect from that kingdom. Leave the kingdom of darkness. Come into the kingdom of light. You can. Just repent. Believe the gospel. You can be free from the slavery of this harlot and this beast and this dragon. That's the story of Scripture. You see it in the contrast, the counterfeit, the real. 
And then look at verse 4. Come out of her, my people, unless you take part in her sins and share in her plagues. He's quoting Old Testament Isaiah, Jeremiah, and other prophets who kept telling the people who were in bondage in Egypt and in Babylon and in Assyria and uh, these, these Medo-Persia, these, these people that had been carried away into slavery, going back to Jacob and his family in slavery in Egypt. And he's saying, come out, free, get out. Don't give yourself to the beast. Don't take his mark in your mind forehead, mind, your thinking, and don't take his mark on your hand with what you do, how you think, what you do. Let me write my name on your heart. Let me put my name on your forehead. Come out of her, my people. Then look, look down at, at verse 20. He says, rejoice over her. My people. He's talking to the heavens and to the saints and the apostles and prophets. God has vindicated you against her. So the exhortations to God's people are come out of here, her, and secondly, rejoice over her that she is going to be destroyed. You see, every one of you, when you see justice upheld, whether it's just in a court of law or, uh, or you watch a movie, uh, and you see that the bad guy gets what he's got coming, you know, John Wayne guns him down, whoever, and the bad villain, Liberty Valance. Okay, so, so think, about, think about these things. When we see justice done, doesn't it cause your spirit to lift? I mean, we don't like to see injustice anywhere, especially if it's been done to us, right? Then we want the wrath of God to fall. Somebody just says a little something to you. I don't like your, your jacket, Ugo. That makes me sick to see it. I want to throw up here in front of everybody. Get you another one. <laughs> see, there you go. I mean, with the littlest thing, and we're just all, oh, oh well, they, well, they stole from me. Are you, go on the, 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 the continuum. Go from the least things all the way to the end. They killed me and my family. And God tells us, don't resist evil. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. So the ground for us, for giving and for being willing to put up with some crazy stuff, even to be wounded or persecuted, Jesus says, bless your enemies, pray for those that decide. What is the basis for all that? Pray for those that despitefully use you. What is the basis for it? Right here. I will repay. Trust me. I know it's going to be hard. I know the desire to take out the sword and cut off their ear is going to be hard. But trust me. At the end of days, I will see it done. And it will be better than anything you could do. Any torture that you could devise will not compare with the righteous judgment of God. It's a very fearful thing. And He's telling us to trust Him here. And then... The fate of the harlot. There's a catalog of her crimes. And I just want to say this very quickly. I wish I had more time. And 
as, and this coming week as I pray, maybe I'll, maybe I'll decide to come back and talk about this some more because it is so important. First crime that she has committed, and listen carefully, I sit as a queen. Now she's in verse 7. I sit as a queen. I'm no widow. I'll never see mourning and weeping again. Now here's her, this harlot, this societal allure that is out there in every society, doesn't matter where you are. This allure for materialism, secularism, consumerism, externals, what kind of car I drive, what kind of house I live in, all that. There's nothing wrong with living in a nice house. In fact, I live in a nice house. It's not as nice as I would like it to be, but it's nice. I live in a nice house. It's not that that, but my address is not what defines me. Okay? It's when it starts to define you. In other words, if it was taken away, then what? Okay, so pride, arrogance, self-satisfaction. Look at her, what she's saying. And, and notice that it's contrasted within a, in, a, in a few verses, a couple of verses. There is weeping and mourning and wailing and crying and they're throwing dust on their heads. It, exactly the opposite of what she says will not happen happens to her. Exactly the opposite. And why? Because she is the promoter. The, the harlot is the agent that the dragon dispatched in the Garden of Eden, that the beast is letting her ride on his back, and the false prophet is promoting in our culture. Just turn your TV on and you see it all there. All of that is being pushed on us by the dragon, the beast from the sea, the beast from the land, the false prophet, and Babylon, this harlot that's riding on the back of the dragon. All of that to do one thing. To make human beings, humanity, drunk, intoxicated with the wine of her spiritual infidelity, which is a... A, another way of saying idolatry, spiritual unfaithfulness. So the question is, what is... See, intoxication causes you to not see... Now, I, I have been drunk, and I'm sorry to say, kids, I hope the kids are here. Don't, don't do what I did. But I have been drunk. But those of you that have been intoxicated or you've been high on drugs or you've been high on something and you can get high on other things besides drugs and alcohol. You can get, you can get intoxicated with any number of things. But if you have been that way, you know that you don't think properly. You're not able to think clearly. You're in a stupor. You make wrong choices and wrong decisions. You're insensitive, you don't feel, you know, the book of Proverbs, I think it's chapter 23 in Proverbs at the end, it's hilarious. He, you know, he talks about staggering and falling and and then he gets to the end, he says, when am I going to get another drink? He doesn't even know what's happened to him. Idolatry creates what we call, what Cornelius Plantinga called delusional fields. In other words, when something captures your heart, listen to me, 
can be anything. Could be good things. In fact, good things are very subtle. But we all know what the bad things are. But there are some good things that can get a hold of you too. Career, children. I told the Sunday school class last week, you want to ruin your children's lives? You want to ruin their lives? Make them the center of your universe. Make everything that you do for them so that if they achieve and they do well and they get straight A's, your boat is floating high. And if they go off the rails, what happens to you? Now there's a difference. I have two kids and I won't tell you the horror stories. (laughs) They're grown now. They have children of their own, which is a joy (laughs) to watch. Whatever happens, you know, you can mourn. I grieve when my kids get, got in trouble and stuff didn't go right. I grieved over it, grieved over it. I blamed myself. I blamed myself, and I was told repeatedly to stop it. It's going to kill you. And that's one of the idols I had to purge from my life, was trying to get my identity from the achievements of my children or the achievements of my work, or how great my sermons are. And they, see how you laugh. You don't know how that hurts. <laughs> no, come on. We know, what ours, we know what they are. Sometimes we don't, but we know what they are. And when you can find them, if you don't go at them, with the gospel of Jesus, if you don't hammer away at them every day, if you are not absolutely violent with your... Jesus said, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. He wasn't talking about mutilating yourself. He was saying, this is the degree to which you must fight because they will enslave you. They'll make you into a slave. And once they've got you, you know what it is. Probably everybody in this room knows somebody that was an addict. Or maybe you were. I was. I know what it is to be addicted. And it is horrible. And when Jesus frees you, He wants you to, these things never to be found in you again. He's not saying, I'm going to erase music. We're not going to have music in heaven. We're not gonna. He's saying, look, all of these things, He's using them as, a, as kind of a pattern. He's saying, these kinds of things will enslave you. Don't let them. Delusional fields. What Cornelius Plottinger called delusional fields of self-justification. We excuse ourselves. We rationalize. We compare ourselves to others. We presume on God's grace. Sometimes, oh, He'll forgive me. We just willy-nilly. Oh, He'll forgive me. I know He's full of grace. Chuck says He's just gracious, so I'll just go do this sin. You know what? He may not forgive you. Don't you ever presume on God's grace. Or you may just use Frank Sinatra's theology. Any of you know Frank Sinatra's theology? I did it my way. We just shake our fist at God. Has anybody ever done that? I did it. Like yesterday. I mean, we shake our fist at God sometimes. I'm just going to do it anyway because I want to. Right? Open rebellion. All of those things. And the root of all sin, 
The root of all sin is grounded in this verses here in Revelation. It is idolatry. You say, well, what is the... What is the, the, the sin behind the sin? What theologians have called the sin that lies underneath the sin. Is it pride? Is it self? Is it, what is it? If you strip all of it away and you look way down at the bottom, the sin that is underneath every sin is the sin of idolatry. And we think idolatry is worshiping little idols, and it's not that. The Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis to right here to the very end, condemns the sin of idolatry above every other sin. And the Pharisees, who would have died before they would have ever worshipped another god, were guilty of idolatry. What did they worship? Self-righteousness. self justification they compared that they had pride pride was their idol self-justification was their idol their goodness was their idol their morality was their idol you can take a good thing and make it your idol and we are being warned listen to what Stephen Charnock one of the great old theologians long dead uh, this is one of my favorite quotes on idolatry listen carefully and you will hear it A man may be said to make a thing his God. Listen. When he acts as if something below God could make him happy without God. Or, that's one, or that God could not make him happy, here's the bad one, without the addition of something else. This was our parents in the garden, their sin. We can't be happy without what? The fruit of knowledge of good and evil. We can't be complete. And if we have that, then we can be complete. And after all, the knowledge of good and evil is not bad in and of itself, is it? God created it, put it there in the garden. And then He said everything is good, so the tree was not bad in and of itself, and knowledge of good and evil is not bad in and of itself. God had knowledge of good and evil, yes. He knew the difference. In the garden, He just didn't want them to know good and evil. He only wanted them to know good. He put them in paradise. Thus, the glutton makes a god of his dainties. I'm not talking that there's nothing wrong with dainties. Who doesn't like dainties? I don't, what are they? Uh, <laughs> thus the god. <laughs> I don't know what they are. What are dainties? Peanut clusters. Those are dainties. All right. Thus the glutton makes a god of his dainties. The ambitious man his honors. One who lacks self-control his lust. The covetous man his wealth and consequently esteems them as his chiefest good and the most noble end to which he directs his thought. Do you see it? It's adding something to God. Could be something good. Or it's saying, you know, I can be happy. I don't need God. I got this. This this will make me happy. I don't need God which is the basis for atheism or agnosticism. So why? Very quickly, let's come to the end because I don't want to go over too much time. And if we need to, I'll come back. 
Why do we see it? Well, let me read for you. Don't turn in your Bible. Just listen to what happens immediately after this. Because this is where we're going for the rest of the book. In verse chapter 19, listen what happens immediately along with all this dirge. See, there's a funeral dirge. You get it? I mean, there's a funeral dirge going on. It would be nice if we could put it to music and, you know, da, 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 and no more of this, and you are going to die and burn, burn, burn. Wouldn't that be cool? Let's do that. All right. But here now we're going to hear another song. Listen. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true. Now you can sing, you know, they're singing the, uh, from the Messiah or uh, uh, the, uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. His judgments are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitute he has co- who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and He's avenged on her the blood of the servants. One more, once more they cried out, Hallelujah! And the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Wow. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. The consummation is come. We're to rejoice that someday God will put an end to the suffering and the injustice and the horrors of this world. He'll put an end to our depression. He'll put an end to our anxieties, our fears, our, our, our horrors, our diseases. He will put an end to these things, our addictions, our pains, an end to war, an end to avarice and greed, an end, an end, an end. He will expose the harlot. For once we will see behind the makeup, the masks, the scarlet, the purple, the pearls, the gold. And we will see that gold is just gold. We will see that pearls are just pearls. We will see that beauty is just beauty. You know, I went to my 40th high school reunion five years ago. Five years ago. And the people that were so beautiful in high school and were the track stars in football and basketball and had money and the girls that were cheerleaders and gorgeous, everybody's old. And everybody's wrinkly. And someday everybody gets old and wrinkly. And once you see it, it's not that great, is it? In fact, he says they're going to hate her and burn her alive. And they're going to devour her flesh. See, they turn. Once you see it, you go, oh, that's not so great. Get away from me. And it also becomes the ground. Why are you saying? Because these people were actually getting persecuted. They were getting torn limb from limb under Domitian. Nero was long gone. The real persecutions came later under Domitian and some of these other guys when they were thrown to the lions and they were, they were tortured. And, you know, it went on. It didn't go on for a long time, thank God, but it went on for a long time. And there was a lot of pain and grief in the church. People watched their children getting murdered watch their spouses getting murdered and they themselves losing their lives. 
But this becomes the grounds for you and me and them, all of us, to hang in there and hold tight to the one who we see. See, we've seen what we see. We've seen why we see it. It becomes the grounds. Who do you see? Look at verse 1. An angel comes down and the earth, the cosmos, everything that is becomes bright with his glory. Now, this is not an appearing of Jesus. This is just an angel that has been dispatched by the great king who's going to be coming shortly in a few moments. He's going to appear on a white horse with all of his army and they're going to come back to the earth and conquer the earth completely and devastate the evil one and all of his followers, the beast, the two beasts, and and the, the dragon himself and all who have the mark. All of that's coming. But he dispatches this angel and just the brightness, the reflected glory of an angel The earth is made bright with His glory. Why? How does Jesus conquer the world? Listen. In the beginning, this is how He conquered the world. Are you getting... Listen. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word... Don't think about this. This, this is just tells us about the Word. Jesus is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Pros ton, theon. Looking at Him face to face, the only being in all creation that can look directly in the face of God and perfectly reflect Him back to Himself is His Son, His spitting image. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. He conquered the darkness by His light. How does He do that? (laughs) Jesus, the light of the world, went into the darkness, the very darkness of death, hell, and the grave. On the cross, He descended into the depths of hell. Not Gehenna, not the place of torment. is worse than that. He was forsaken by God on the cross. And the world, it says the cosmos became dark. And by taking, listen folks, this is the gospel, this is all it is. By taking the darkness into himself and putting it to death by his righteous life, by his perfect life, he freed and conquered Satan and everything and the beast, the dragon, all of them. He conquered them and he tells us, you and me, trust me. Trust me with your darkness. Trust me with your pain, with your grief, with your sorrow. Don't trust anything else. Trust me. 
Will you trust him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, uh, we live in a world that is just cloaked in darkness and even sometimes our own lives are filled with it. And I pray that through your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, that the light of life would shine in us. We would become at least the people of Christ the King. That We would become the bearers of that image. That we would become the spitting image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. That we would represent him well to this world, love this world well the way he did. Trust you the same way he did. And I pray for everyone here today, Father, you would do the same thing. That you'd make each and every one of us lights to this world, salt and light, beacons of hope. Fill us with joy and gladness. Help us. Save us. And have mercy on us, O God, we pray. Amen.